podcast of Antioch Church in Colorado Springs. If you've been impacted by this ministry and would like to support the work we're doing in Colorado Springs, you can give online at our website, antiochcos.com. We hope that the Lord ministers to you through this message. Well, good morning, church. This morning, I have an exciting task. We're going to talk about sin together. (laughs) It's going to be awesome. But in all seriousness, we're going to talk uh, together about Psalm 51. If you've been with us the last number of weeks, you know we've been trekking through the Psalms in no particular order, just hitting some high points that the lectionary uh, leads us to. We had my good friend here, Bobby Parks, last week. Bobby's fiery, isn't he, guys? Man, Bobby and I officed next to each other for six and a half years at ORU, and uh, he's a great friend. We were glad to have him at men's retreat. But I will tell you, I speak a little bit differently than Bobby. So bear with me. I think today, um, I really want to get to a place at the end of this where we're going to do a little bit of a practice together, which is unique. We are going to come to the table, but right before, we're going to take a few of these things from Psalm 51, and I'd like to enact them together as a corporate body. Uh, A little bit of confession and repentance, something that hopefully will lead us to a place to know how to do this in our own lives moving forward. But before we do, I want to just begin by setting this passage up. Uh, Even if you've been a believer for about 10 minutes, you've probably heard three or four of the verses from this chapter. It's a very, very famous, very popular chapter. And most of us are at least semi-aware of the story that led to the writing of this psalm. But just in case, in the event that we are not, I'm going to do a little bit of storytelling. I'm not going to read it because it's about two and a half chapters worth of material. But back in 2 Samuel, King David in chapter 10 comes off of a really high moment where the the Israelites defeat the Arameans and the Ammonites. Did I get that right? I think I did. He essentially defeated two birds with one stone. And if you read this story, it's actually a really cool, unique story, 2 Samuel chapter 10. And then the first verse of chapter 11 says that in in the springtime when the kings went off to war, David sent Joab. David stayed home. And then one evening, just before dusk, he is meandering across the rooftop and he sees Bathsheba, a woman who is not his wife, bathing on her rooftop at a place that he has visible access to. And then from that place, he calls one of his servants to go find out who she is. And as the story goes, he has her brought into his castle He sleeps with her, she becomes pregnant, and then David starts trying to cover his tracks. So David has her husband uh, brought home in the hopes that he will then sleep with her and that it will cover up David's mistake. And Uriah refuses to do so and basically sleeps at the city gate. And then David realizes, well, my first plan didn't work, 
And so then he calls Joab on the cell phone that he didn't have. Somehow he gets a hold of Joab and says, we got to do something to put Uriah in harm's way. I, I need him extinguished, essentially. So he places him in a place that he knows he's going to be in hand-to-hand combat. And sure enough, Uriah is, is killed. And then in the next chapter, it says that the Lord was displeased. Duh, right? The Lord was displeased with all of David's actions. And so he calls a prophet, Nathan, to come and confront David. So the prophet Nathan comes and confronts David, and he doesn't immediately call him out for his sin, but he begins to tell him a fable. He tells him a story where David is equated with the one in the story who is committing the crime. And he gets to the end of this story and David says, this man must be killed. Whoever this man is, he must be killed. And then Nathan turns and looks at David and says, well, David, this man is you. And David immediately repents in that space. And he says, but because of your repentance, the Lord will allow you to live because David should have been killed. Um, the penalties for his sins, for multiple of his sins, would have been the death penalty. But because he repented, the Lord showed him mercy. And so the extended version of that prayer, many, not all scholars believe, is this transcription of Psalm 51. So Psalm 51 is the most extensive prayer of confession and repentance in all of Scripture. And I think that there is in almost every verse, something that we could preach an entire sermon on, to be uh, really honest. But this morning, there's just three things that I want to highlight. A good evangelical sermon for you with three points this morning. (laughs) Although my points aren't going to be one word or even a few words, I just want to highlight three of the things from this chapter that I think are mostly applicable to us. Most of us in the room will never have the privilege or the opportunity to do, to commit the list of sins that David committed and to impact and affect the amount of people that David did. So I think there is an unhelpful way to hear this and go, man, shame on David. Thank God I could never do that. But that wouldn't exactly be helpful to us. So I wanna try and get at this morning What are the things that this passage is speaking to us as people who most likely, most of us in the room will never commit adultery or certainly, hopefully, never commit murder. But when we find our place, having recognized that we also commit sins regularly, what do we do? We hear in church that we are called to repent, but what does that look like? And how do we repent for things that we're not sure if we can even see as sinful in our own lives? I'm gonna, for the sake of time, I'm gonna move right into the meat of this. Um, I'm, (laughs) I'm known amongst my friends for my elaborate long introductions, but this morning I'm just gonna jump right in, okay? I'm looking at you, Aaron Brown. (laughs) You are looking at me. So let's together, let's jump over to Psalm 51. I want to begin with verse 1. We're going to read the first 12 verses together, and then we'll discuss, and then we're going to pray. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. 
According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you alone have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are justified in your sentence and blameless when you pass judgment. Indeed, I was born guilty, a sinner when my mother conceived me. You desire truth in the inward being. And then this is my favorite line that I want to spend time on. Therefore, teach me wisdom in my secret heart. Purge me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and put a new and right spirit within me. Do not cast away, cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Last verse, restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain in me a willing spirit. This is the word of the Lord. David begins rightly, I think, by calling on the Lord's character. Let's leave uh, verse one up there, Joe, if you don't mind. And I think that there is something profound about the way that this psalm begins. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. It seems that just as David is aware of his own sinfulness, he's even more convinced in the goodness of God and in God's willingness to pour out mercy and to pour out forgiveness. And I think in our own lives, so much of the shame and the condemnation that we find in ourselves at times is because we are more convinced of our own sinfulness than we are of God's goodness. And here's one of the things that's so fascinating, that this is in the Old Testament. This is, this is before the life and the ministry and the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus, the ultimate display of God's goodness and mercy. But David was so convinced by one, the stories of the people of Israel that had been told of God's faithfulness and God's goodness and God's mercy to him and God's activity in his own life up to that point. He was so convinced by those two things that God's goodness and God's mercy far outweighed even his own terrible sinfulness. And I told you the list of sins is, it is envy, it is pride, it is pawning off his responsibility on others and abusing his own privilege, adultery, murder, deceit, covering it up. I mean, the list of sins, sins, one of the scholars says that David broke seven of the 10 commandments in one story. It's pretty bad. Yeah, this is pretty bad. And even unto that point, David is still more convinced of God's goodness than he is even of his own sinfulness. His confidence is not in his sincerity or his ability to change his own patterns of behavior. His confidence is only in God's ability to act on his behalf. Think about that. That when David finds himself at the lowest place of his own sinfulness, his confidence is more in God's ability to act on his behalf and to create a new future for him and those who he's impacted than it is in his, the sincerity of his prayer, the brokenness of his own heart, or his own ability to change his actions. How often 
Do we place more emphasis on our own ability through accountability groups, through, through patterns that we try and enact in our lives to offset other patterns in our lives? But David doesn't find himself in that place. David throws himself on the feet of God and says, have mercy on me according to your steadfast love and according to your abundant mercy. This is confidence we're reading here. Blot out my transgressions. Only God can act on sin and the sinner in a meaningful way. Think about that. How often we try and act in ways that are meaningful once we have sinned or when we've been sinned against. And this is one of the beauties and one of the places that we can find the gospel in this Old Testament story is that even here in Psalm 51, we see God, and we'll talk about it in just a minute at the end of this prayer, we see that David cries out for God not to just work on the past and not for God to just blot away and undo the things of the past, but to create a new future for David. And this is the God that we serve, that in our brokenness, in our sinfulness, that we serve a God who can transform the past and launch us into a new future. Amen? Yes. Amen. I know that talking about sin is not the most exciting thing in the world, but it is something that is a reality for us. And I think that the more we understand this, the more beautiful the gospel becomes for us. The second thing I want to highlight is God's merciful forgiveness. That there seems to be, there's, I believe, nine petitions in this prayer. Don't count them, but count them later maybe. And it's interesting because they fall into two different realms of the way that God's merciful forgiveness acts in our lives. So to get theological for just about 45 seconds here, there are things that appeal to God to justify David and then there are appeals towards sanctification. And this conversation was brought about a lot during the Protestant Reformation. Uh, Martin Luther really emphasized the justification of God. And theologically, what that means is think about a ledger back in the day before QuickBooks. They would keep their debts on ledgers. And justification is coming along behind uh, a debtor and wiping away their debt. You may remember that story uh, in the New Testament, where one is forgiven little, but one is forgiven much, and then their joy and their forgiveness is supposed to correspond to the amount that they have been forgiven. That this is the principle of justification, that the, the debts that we have accrued in our lives, God wipes them away. And that is glorious. That is a part of God's mercy. But the other part of God's mercy is that David also then later acknowledges not just his sin, but his own sinfulness, okay? So there is a, God, do something with what I've done, with these terrible acts that, that I have committed first and foremost against you, but also against this woman and her now deceased murdered husband. And now as the king of Israel, the king of all these people who are impacted, God, do something with what I have done. But then there is, God, the place from which these actions came is a dirty, sinful man. And God, I'm asking not only that you would blot away my sin, but that you would do something in me, in the wellspring of what it was that birthed these sinful acts. 
So some of the language here, just to point out, blot out my transgressions, my sin is ever before me. Hold my sin not against me. Like these are things that are referring to the justification, the forgiveness of the previous acts where, God, where David is calling on God to do something with what he has done. And then he says, purge me with hyssop. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. There is this move from justification to sanctification. And one of the things I wanna to submit to you is that God's forgiveness refuses to just do one or the other for us that when we come to God, that he insists on doing both of these. That the song that we sang at the end there this morning, the love of God, what are the words? I should know these words. I'm gonna call these, I'm gonna read these words. It's so much easier to sing them than to say them. The love of God gave me his pardon. The love of God won't let me stay the same. Do you hear the difference? The first is referring to justification, pardon for the things I've done. God, don't hold those things against me. But then, God, don't leave me in that place. Don't leave me in that place. Move me into a place of new creation, of sanctification, of touching the deep places in me that led me to those sins to begin with. And I submit to you this morning that God refuses to do just one or one or the other, that God's forgiveness and God's activity in our life is always both of those. And then the point that I really want to spend most of our time on comes in verse six. You may remember Pastor Jay just two weeks ago spoke on wisdom, wisdom in the Psalms. And there is... In my estimation, there are multiple kinds of wisdom, multiple ways of understanding wisdom. But verse six here says, you desire truth in the inward being. Therefore, teach me wisdom in my secret heart. And as I was looking around, reading commentaries, thinking about this, this was the phrase all week that stuck with me. Partly because Shane and Shane has a song called Wisdom in the Secret Heart based off of Psalm 51. But I was pondering what, what is, for one, the secret heart, and then what does wisdom in the secret heart look like? And I think at the core of this prayer is the desire for wisdom to govern the places in our hearts that are hidden to us. That there is a kind of wisdom, as Pastor Jade spoke about a few weeks ago, where we're in a crisis, we're in a fork in the road, or we're constantly butting up against a problem or an issue with a child or a colleague or a coworker or whatever, and we need the wisdom of God. But then there is the wisdom of God that we need to be at work in us when we're completely unaware that there is even a problem. And I think that ultimately that what this verse is appealing to, that God, we need your wisdom to be at work in the secret places in us where we don't even know that we're about to sin or that we have a proclivity to sin. We don't even know to ask. And God, we need your wisdom to be at work in that place because God is always more interested or God is always interested in doing more than just wiping our sins away. He's interested in opening our blinded eyes and exposing our deceived hearts unto healing. And I think we need to hear this this morning, that yes, God wants to forgive us of our sins, but ultimately, that's just a step that God goes through to get at healing our hearts. 
And as Aaron said in his offering exhortation today, a great prayer to ask and a prayer that we're going to pray together at the end of this message in just a few minutes is that the Lord would illuminate the secret places of our hearts, the dangerous places where we don't even know that we're prone and susceptible to deception and to rationalizing and just like David, finding ourselves in a matter of days or even moments in the deepest, darkest place of sin that we never could have imagined ourselves being in. When we're deceived, only a work of God can bring us to see rightly. And this needs to become a part of our prayer life. And then lastly, I'd like to move just to the last verse here, and then I'm gonna tie this all together with a couple of prayers for us this morning. Verse 12, restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain in me a willing spirit. I recognized this week that for 32 years, I've prayed this and read this wrongly. That I always thought it said, restore to me the joy of my salvation. That's what I've always read. I've sang it in songs. I've read it. I've seen it rightly and said it wrongly. And it hit me this week. As a matter of fact, it didn't even hit me until Thursday of this week. And at first I thought, oh, no big deal. But then the more I thought about my mistake, I thought it was actually a profound mistake. I think that the way that we should hear this is, yes, Lord, restore to me the joy of my salvation, meaning that I have been chosen and called out and engrafted into the family of God. I think that is absolutely a part of what this Psalm means. But I think that there's another even deeper meaning here. And I, I worked, I know that I'm not a scholar, but I worked to translate this myself. So I'd like to read you my translation of this verse. Help me find joy again in being saved by you. Sustain within me a spirit that is willing to be saved over and over and over again. It seems to me, having been a Christian since the, my first moments of being aware of anything at all, is all of my earliest memories are in church. I've been walking with the Lord somewhat faithfully and some unfaithfully for 32 years. And the more convinced I, I or the, the more that I walk with the Lord, the more convinced I am that our salvation is a journey with Christ toward healing and communion with him. And I think for us to be good, faithful Christians and ones who walk faithfully with one another and with Christ, that we have to get to a place where we can find joy even in the process of repentance that we have to get to a place where we realize that we're better off in the hands of God than with our own hands making things happen for ourselves. That we're better off bringing our brokenness and our sinfulness and our frailty to God and asking him to act on it in ways that are creative that only he can than when we try and piece together the stuff in our own lives. <clears throat> So much of the Christian life is coming to really believe that we are better off in God's hands than we are with our own. And at the root of sin, we are deceived to believe that we are better off protecting and providing for ourselves than being dependent on God. I think that there are two very clear stories of this. For one, Genesis in the garden the initial call from the enemy to Adam and Eve 
is, are you sure that God really is good? It's a call for them to take things into their own hands that God fully intends to do with them and to be with them and be for them. But the distinction is that God wants to be goodness to them with them, not for them to find those things apart from him. I think that's, that's ultimately what this is. And I didn't say that as well as I'd like, so I'd like to move to, uh, in Matthew 4 and in Luke 4, we see the temptations of Jesus. And right on the heels of Jesus being baptized and being called a beloved son of God, we've heard this so many times. Pastor Jade has preached this many times to us. Satan begins by saying, if you really are, it's a call for Christ to take things into his own hands, to use the, the stones to turn them into bread for his own good. And I think that is at the core of the deception that most sin is rooted in. It's an appeal to us to take things into our own hands because ultimately we really aren't sure that we're better off being in God's hands than we are doing things on our own for ourselves. I think that another story is the rich young ruler where we see this. We see that the rich young ruler has done everything in the law that was commanded of him. And yet Jesus, when he asks him to give up everything, he can't bring himself to that place. And I think it's because ultimately he believed he was better off trusting his own ability to save himself than in Jesus who was calling him to lay it aside to find true salvation. One of the paradoxes of the kingdom in following Jesus is that in laying down ourselves, we find true joy and true freedom. And this requires that God grant us and sustain in us a spirit that is willing to be confronted and convicted of our sin time and time again. But this is the only path to true freedom. And when we begin to learn this, we enter the realm of true joy. When we begin to come to grips with the fact that the confrontation of our sin that the spirit brings us to, those, those moments when we're finally able to see those really utterly disgusting things in our own lives, that that is the beginning of the journey toward freedom in that area. And I think that in a really paradoxical way that we are able to find joy in that process because ultimately we trust that there is goodness and healing on the other side. And so I think that we can hear this and go, restore to me the joy of my salvation, yes, but restore to me the joy of being saved by you and sustain in me a spirit that is willing to walk that out with you over and over and over again. Kirby, if you would come, we're gonna end, we are gonna come to the table, but before we do, I want to read a couple of prayers that I would like us to participate in together. I breezed through a lot of these points, but I think the ultimate takeaway for us is that we need to be more convinced of the goodness of God than we are of our own sinfulness. That however terrible our sin is, that God delights in washing it away and washing us clean and renewing a right and willing spirit within us once again. And I want us to take a couple of minutes and pray for two things this morning. One is a prayer of awareness that we would have the courage 
to allow the Spirit to confront us and convict us of our own sin. And we're gonna pause after I read this prayer and then we're gonna pray a prayer of confession. I will pray it over us. I don't believe it'll, it'll be on the screen. And it's a prayer that you have heard probably many times before. And then having done that, we're gonna come to the table. So I'd like for you just to get in a posture of uh, being able to receive this morning. So either sit up straight, you can, you can put your hands out, you can put your hands together, however, however you are comfortable. But I want us to turn our attention to the Lord. And I'm gonna pray this prayer slowly and believing that even this morning that the Holy Spirit is going to begin to act on our conscience, on our awareness, and on our spirits. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my thoughts. See if there is any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would grant us the courage to be confronted with what we find in our secret hearts. We ask for the gift of being made aware of the things within us that we are now blind to. Places that are wounded, sick, infected, scared, dry, fearful, and even deceived. Holy Spirit, lead us to Jesus who is the true light that shines into the darkness. Open our eyes and turn them to see where you are at work within us, even now. And may we find your grace and mercy there. Let us sit still before the Lord for just a minute. that you would continue this work into the future of our lives. That as difficult as that prayer of asking for the courage of being aware of what is in our secret hearts is, we ask for the grace to do it. We ask that you would remind us, that you would nudge us, and then at times when we are hardened, that you would even send Nathans into our path to save us from our own self-destructive. Now I'd like us to pray a prayer of confession. And as soon as we're over or we're done with this prayer, I'd ask the uh, community attendants to come forward. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought and word and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. For we have not loved you with our whole heart and we have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us. Have mercy on us and forgive us. Have mercy on us, O Lord, and forgive us. That we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. Communion attendants, if you would come forward. <clears throat> You may be in this place today and you're on a mountaintop (laughs) 
or you're just in a really good season, a very normal season of life. But I want you to be encouraged that when you come to these places of confrontation with your sin, that you can be assured that God's goodness and his mercy are so much stronger and so much more faithful than your unfaithfulness. And there are also others of us in this place that have been sinned against. And for you, I want you to know the Lord hurts with you and that his mercy is also at work on your behalf, creating a new future, transforming the past and helping you to move ahead into new creation. So church, I'd like us to stand together. We'll exit out the left side of our aisles. The communion attendants will serve us the bread and the juice. And if we could return to our seats and then we will partake together, come to the table of the Lord. to the Antioch Church Sermon of the Week. For more information about us, visit AntiochCOS.com.